Okay. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and start, start with prayer. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the day. Thank you for being with us throughout this day. We're grateful for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for gathering us together. And I pray that you would once again um, help us learn, give us insight, and recognize again your, your hand in how you faithfully work down through the ages. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Two weeks ago, or whatever it was, last time we met, we, I think, finished with um, approximately when Charlemagne was coronated as emperor um, of the Holy Roman Empire, not the old Roman, but um, of a Christian kingdom, really. And that was Christmas Sunday of 800, 800 AD, okay? Um, <clears throat> and what I want to try to look at tonight, and uh, hope I can do it, looking at probably from about 800 um, to at least 1,000 or maybe a little beyond that as the next kind of section of years and a look at some of the things that were going on doctrinally, some of the things that were going on in the sense of the state and the church um, mingled, the continued rise of the authority of the Pope. Those are probably um, at least two, maybe three things, kind of layers of things that were going on um, at the same time. I don't know, by the way, if any of you, um, do any of you still have that map that I gave you? If you don't, there's nothing I can do about it because I've only got three extra copies. This, anybody remember that? Okay, we got a few of them. <coughs> um, I'll have you look at that um, in a minute here. But let's, maybe let's look first at the, <clears throat> what was going on, I guess you'd say, politically, governmentally, culturally, um, during this time after Charlemagne is anointed um, Holy Roman Emperor, um, how that came about, what the result was, so forth. Um, <clears throat> I've mentioned a couple times learning some things myself in re-studying all this. 90% um, of the problems and 90% of the uh, settling, 90% of the invading, 90% of the conquering, um, and of shifting of cultures was all the lousy Germans, okay? <laughs> Now, they were, but it points out the strength 
of even though the Germanic tribes were um, tribal, they had no really government um, per se, but they were a, an enterprising, very strong, very warlike um, um, people, okay? Um, and though they, we today would say the Germanic tribes or Germany, it was really outside of the boundaries of what we today understand to be Ger uh, Germany. But um, they, were, they were related, okay? Um, and they were a major source, going clear back to the Roman Empire, they were a major, major source of pressure from the north um, on the empire. That continued even after the empire collapsed. And the pressure, of course, um, was easier once the Roman Empire collapsed in the fives, okay? Um, and you have a lot of just kind of tribalism. You have the gradual crumbling of the Roman Empire, even after it fell in a sense, it, it didn't um, collapse overnight. Um, you still have vestiges of their way of thinking, their law and organization and so forth, but it just, it crumbled, it splintered. Um, and then you have people called the Northmen, okay, which Northmen gradually became um, Normans, Normandy. You end up with William the Conqueror, uh, a, a Norman conquering England. Um, they were all, now those, the Normans that were called the Northmen, were for the most part Scandinavian, uh, Danish, the Vikings, okay? Um, and if anything, they were wilder than the Germans were, okay? Um, <clears throat> and so they, they didn't threaten the Germans a lot by coming right straight down in, from the north of the German tribes into their territory. But they would come around by the sea, they were seafaring. So they would come around, they would get, they would attack from Spain through Normandy, um, French coast. They would even come down, a few of them even came down into the Mediterranean and then, and then um, struck north from the northern shore of the Mediterranean. But you have a whole lot of just continual ferment going on. Then Charlemagne gets made um, emperor by the Pope. Okay, This map then is not all. Um, this contains his territory. His territory wasn't this large, but the heart of it that um, involved probably what we could say is northeast, northeastern part of what's today France, um, where you have Belgium, you have the Netherlands, and you have the western uh, big chunk of Germany, what today would be Germany. That's, um, that's in the, well, it's in the purple, darker green, lighter green um, colors in this map. So he had a large um, t 
territory that he was over. He was a good administrator. He brought people to heal, generally. Um, you know, he, he lowered the hammer on people. Uh, he was primarily a warrior. Um, he also, I, I think I mentioned this, um, he was a famous, um, he was famous in converting people to Christianity, especially when he passed a law that you, if you're not baptized, if you won't be baptized, you will be killed. And they didn't believe it. And so in one day, he put to death 4,500 soldiers of some of the Germanic tribes who dithered about being baptized, okay? Um, so that's another whole thing that kind of begins to take place in these centuries. More and more reliance on arms and armies to convert people rather than persuasion, preaching, um, the Word of God, okay? It was a whole lot quicker, <laughs> um, you know, and you could have exponential growth, <clears throat> especially when you said, be baptized or we'll kill you. <clears throat> Membership mushroomed. <clears throat> um, but it's a whole period of time when, though I think later, um, genuine Christianity would, would spring up in the hearts of people in those lands later because of the dominance of Christianity. Um, at least initially, it, it was not Christ-like. <laughs> okay? I think we could say that. Um, <clears throat> so, you have from the eight from eight hundred, you have clear almost to a thousand of the um, descendants of Charlemagne. Um, I forget how many generations. Um, they had a bad habit then. I don't know why they did this, but every succeeding, even within a dynasty, every succeeding king. Um, well, of course, the territory he governed, they treated as their own property. In that, they, de they bequeathed it to their sons, okay? They didn't have, like, a necessarily a kingdom with real crisp borders that they anointed an heir over. They would repeatedly, if they had three sons, they divided the kingdom by three and gave a third each son. And then um, they would fight among each other, but if they didn't kill each other off, which was pretty frequent, then let's say you got two, two of the three, the left, and so, which was a case with uh, Charlemagne's sons, um, then you're gonna have several niece or nephews from the two sons, uh, grandsons to Charlemagne. So then it gets divided up whenever, whichever one dies, an, another three or four ways. And it was, it, it was debilitating. They would chop it down to where they were tiny little precincts. Um, and it was just dumb. I don't know why they did that. But at any rate, um, 
there was not much in the way of a sense of citizenship and of obligation to the ruler to care for his people. It was his domain, and it was his right in their minds to give to whoever he wanted to give when he was, you know, going to die. Now, um, <clears throat> that served to weaken the line of Charlemagne, so that by the 980s, you got you almost 200 years later, um, it got down to where it was weak as water. Okay. They couldn't hold on to anything anymore, um, and they had the, the Normans, the Northmen coming down. Um, they had what's today Hungary. Those were relatives of the Huns. They started invading and picking off land. Um, it's, it's a real time of upheaval. Now, in the middle of all that, you have a seesaw battle between the church in the person of the Pope and these different rulers, kings, warrior chiefs, whatever you want to call them. Okay? Now, the reason the Pope in the first place ever coronated, um, crowned Charlemagne to be Holy Roman Emperor was because... Italy was unable to defend itself. Rome couldn't defend itself. And um, there were uprisings and stuff. So you go to the strongest warrior chief and army that you know of, and that was up in what we today would call France. So back in the 1799 or 799, you have Pope Leo about to be run out of town so he travels all the way over the Alps and goes up into what is today Western Germany. I mean, that's a long trip. Then, especially back then, so that he can meet with Charlemagne and talk Charlemagne into being his um, muscle. Okay? Um, he doesn't have, Leo doesn't have enough of an army to defend Rome and defend the papacy. And so he goes to a stronghold of Catholicism, which is France and Charlemagne. He invites him to come down and then on Christmas Day, he coronate, you know, crowns him and blesses him and anoints him to be the, the king, or, you know, the Roman emperor. Um, so that Charlemagne will be indebted to protect him and he does he Charlemagne and his army make several trips down into Italy to bail out Leo and subsequent church officials okay now so you got the Holy Roman Emperor created by the Pope because the Pope needs some muscle and the Pope hasn't got any well that's not that's not a marriage that's going to last Okay, the, the Pope wants the muscle, but he doesn't want any advice. He doesn't want any meddling in what he's doing. He wants you just do your job. Well, Charlemagne is figuring, wait a minute, we're, we're lo I'm losing soldiers. I'm putting my own life in danger. This is costly, too. 
I'm going to, don't tell me to stay out of church business because it affects my country and what I do. You can't mingle church and state like that and not have competition. And so that's what begins to break out. By the time Charlemagne, which was only, I can't remember, not very many years, like six or seven or something, no, it was more than that. Anyway, it's less than 15. <clears throat> he, <clears throat> he, Charlemagne, anoints his son to be emperor in his place. He does it without the pope even being present. Okay? So he does it now on his own authority, even though he was crowned on the pope's authority and by the pope. And he also does it way up north in Germany at a place called Aachen. And he built a cathedral there, and he did it in conjunction with the dedication, kind of, or the opening of this um, cathedral. Now, it, Aachen is not on this map, but if you happen to have the map, if you look like only probably two inches down from the very top of the map and just slightly to the right of the middle, there's the city Cologne. Anybody see that that's got a map? If you go about a quarter of an inch to the left of Cologne, on that river, I don't, it's the Meuse or whatever, how you ever pronounce that. Um, that's where Aachen was founded as, he, as Charlemagne's capital, okay? So he's well up, he's actually on the border between uh, Belgium, what's today Belgium, Netherlands, and Germany, okay? Far away from Rome, um, signaling uh, thanks a lot for um, making me Holy Roman Emperor, but I'll take it from here. Okay? Um, <clears throat> now, of course, that rankles not only the current Pope, but subsequent Popes. So you have this, you have this back and forth. They both sort of need each other, but they're never going to quit making sure they get the last word or they have, um, they're a little bit above um, the other one. <clears throat> so this kind of, this also weakens things. Meanwhile, if you're not totally confused by now, Charlemagne's descendants, they begin to weaken and his kingdom begins to kind of slump. And you have the rise in like the, after the 800s, more into the 900s, but especially in the thousands, um, the rise of what's called feudalism, okay? Anybody know what, what's feudalism? Anybody, A, do, you, do we care? What, yes? Pardon me? Lords and peasants, yeah. And there's another term, or there's another group of people that, that are a layer in between lords and peasants, and that, those are called vassals, okay? Now, here's what happened. With the collapse of whatever you'd have as a central king sort of government, like the weakening of Charlemagne's descendants and dynasty, then 
they still, everyone, needed protection from the crazy Germans, okay, that continued to come down and just kill everything in sight. And so, just for security and safety, things got down to where it became highly localized in that the local lord, the rich guy who had a castle, and many of the castles, this was a flurry of the building of castles in these several centuries here. They were built as fortresses. And the local farmers and the local people would then gather themselves around the nearest castle, okay? And they even, it evolved, but they set up a system, a ritual, where um, the lord of the manor would be seated in something like a throne, and the people who would be a vassal to him, meaning they served him, they could, they could use the land. And most of the time, here's what they did. To some degree, this... This has always happened, and I think we can even see some things going on today. But for the sake of security, the peasants traded away their land. So they became bond slaves to the lord of the manor in exchange for him letting them run for safety to the castle, and his knights would protect them. So you know, that you, they gave up freedom and the ownership of their property. They would give their property to the Lord of the manor. So, he, of course, he just grew fabulously land rich. Now, um, they, the, the Lord of the manor would turn around and allow them virtually perpetual use of the land to his you know, um, descendants and so forth. Um, but when, let's, let's just say, you know, I am um, one of the farmers around the castle. I go to the lord of the manor that has the castle in exchange for you guaranteeing my security. Um, I, I deed you, I give you my property. And then he would turn around and he would say, um, you are you can use it. He would have a tax on it. I don't know what it would be, ten percent or something, that of the crops that I'd have to pay to him. But I got the rest. Okay. And then when I died, my son or sons would also have to go to the Lord of the Manor, go through the ritual where he sat in a throne. They knelt on their knees and they would literally put their hands in between his hands and symbolizing giving themselves and their land and so forth to him, okay? Um, <clears throat> now, then you had um, large landowners, lords of the manor, that would get in league with other big landholding lords of the manor and sometimes if they would get with a larger, richer, bigger, stronger lord of the matter, 
the local lord of the manor would himself go to the bigger lord of the manor, go through that same ritual that the peasants went through, and give him all the property that he had, yet he could keep the use of it. Okay? So really what you have is that after the disintegration of a more centralized king-monarchy kind of a thing, um, it, it just dissolved back into tribalism. But even there, they recognized the need of cooperation. Nobody could survive on their own. So we got to get together, however loosely we get together or however costly it might be, um, we got to have some protection from these marauding bands that are always coming down and you know pillaging and whatever else. Um, so feudalism then it lasts for centuries, and the, those lords of the manor, if you want to call them that, they rise in importance. They end up being the people that if somebody's going to try to become king, he's got to curry favor with enough of them. You have that going on in Britain and a lot of places where you had to have the support of all these, quote, nobles, or you, you, know, you get a dagger in the back if you're trying to become the leader of all of them. Okay? Um, also... As they, and most of this, still, most of this is in a broad swath of what we would call um, eastern half of France, Belgium, Netherlands, western half at least of Germany, um, Austria, what's today Austria, that whole kind of middle of Europe, okay? Um, it began to become pretty settled then. Those... Uh, those lords grew in importance. Some got greater, some sunk and dissip dissipated or swore allegiance to them. You end up with a few that were very prominent. Okay? Now, those prominent ones and their, their families, because it took centuries, they ended up becoming what are called electors. They evolved away from the Pope naming the Holy Roman Emperor to these noblemen, lords of the manors, who were rich and powerful. They started naming the Holy Roman Emperor to kind of push the power of the Pope away. Okay? Now, this will get us, eventually, um, clear into Martin Luther's days in the, in the Reformation. Because the, um, the elector of Saxony, uh, I think it was Frederick, but I'm not, I can't remember for sure, ended up protecting Luther from the Pope. The Pope put a price on Luther's head. We're going to burn him at stake. Anybody, you know, you, he's, he's to be turned over to us. Well, the only thing that saved Luther 
other than God, was the elector of Saxony who figured, I'm a German, I'm the umpteenth whoever that's been on the Lord of this manor. No Italian pope is telling me what to do. And this is a German monk they're picking on. I'm not turning him over to anybody. So you have a lot of this history of the rise of localized power that ends up aiding in the um, break away from Catholicism, which didn't occur for another five, six hundred years. But it kind of set the stage for it. Okay? Now, <clears throat> um, where in the world are we? Um, anyway, all of this is going on, which gets us way out ahead. So we got we to gotta kind of um, pull back. <clears throat> now, what are, remember you have this cat and mouse thing going on between the papacy, the office of the Pope, and the Holy Roman Emperor, and the various um, electors, if you want to call it. There was another big argument that kind of went on for a while, seesawed back and forth. Who takes precedence as far as power? Is it the state or is it the church? Well, of course, the Pope maintained that spiritual things are superior to worldly or earthly, temporal things. So, of course, the, the church should be the authority. The state, of course, the, the kings or you know, the powers that be didn't agree. They wanted, they wanted the Pope's endorsement, but they still didn't want to be under him. Okay? So that was a backroom deal and, and little um, uh, you know, maneuvering here and there for who knows, long time. <clears throat> One of the ways that the church then about the only way that they could gain some leverage was spiritually. And so you have the, you have the rise of several um, doctrines, teachings. You have the rise of um, the seat of Peter as they call it, the power of Peter. The power of Peter lives in the current pope, whoever he is, okay, supernaturally. That's why um, the pope, when he speaks regarding doctrines and whatever else, is considered infallible, which is just a wild claim when you start thinking about it. Um, I mean, to claim infallibility, um, but also the pope is the vicar of Christ, on earth, the representative of Christ on earth. Um, also, the, there was a, a continual incremental growth in the power to forgive or not to forgive sins. Okay? Another doctrine or teaching that began to get emphasized more and more um, and, and, ex, and even explained by the popes that they were the mediators on earth between people and God. Now, 
The Bible is abundantly clear that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So essentially what Catholicism really did, it took some centuries to do it, but they elbowed Jesus off of the stage and substituted the church, which means personified in the Pope, as the mediator between men and God. So they held sway over the consciences of men and women. They forgave or refused to forgive sins. They could prescribe the activities, uh, good works, penance, and so forth, um, that people would have to perform in order to be forgiven. Okay? So, you can understand in this contest as to who's going to be primary, the, you know, the popes resorted to tyranny over people's spiritual lives. Okay? Now, it could only last until people figured out that it was nonsense. You know what I mean? But unfortunately, take Charlemagne. Charlemagne is, is, even by secular historians, is a pivotal person in Western culture, Western history. Um, he could, he was, he was illiterate. He, when he was, after he became king, he got, and I'll get into that maybe in a second, but um, he did um, very much for learning, establishing schools in all the monasteries and teaching people to read, to write, and math, and all those things, philosophy. But he could not read or write even when he was crowned king. He learned to haltingly read before he died. He never learned to write. And he's um, a world history figure. So illiteracy made it very easy for the Catholic authorities to, you know, bamboozle people and have them scared to death that they were going to deny them heaven. Um, and they would, they'd buy it. Even kings bought it. One of the things that they they also, the rise of the power of the Pope that I think I explained to you last time was in the whole ritual of excommunication or denying Eucharist and then what was, you could deny the Eucharist which was called excommunication. That was for individuals but you could also um, have another term which they called interdiction and I think I told you that the last time we were here that they could, they could prohibit any priest in the whole of wherever, whatever country or kingdom. They were no longer allowed. They, they could only do this. The only thing they could do, they could perform baptisms and they could perform last rites. Okay? But they were not allowed to offer the Eucharist, communion, to anybody in that kingdom, country, whatever the case might have been, until the leader of that country kowtowed to the Pope. Then the Pope would suspend 
the interdiction, and now the people could once again have communion. And without communion, you go to hell. You can't be saved without it. Okay, so that all of that figured in, even doctrinal changes, and the rise um, of falser and falser doctrines, all had to do with really a secular tug of war as to who was going to run this farm. Do you understand? So, um, so much of what went on had nothing to do with God. The care of souls was gone. Um, and as through these years and heading to um, heading to kind of a peak in the 1400s, but we're not there yet, um, was a continual escalating of the power of the Pope, the astounding riches of the church. Um, by this time, in virtually every country, province, kingdom, whatever you wanted to call it, the largest landholders maybe even rivaling the king or whoever it was, was the Catholic Church. All the lands with the monasteries, with churches, um, you know, cathedrals, chapels, whatever, um, they would have been um, largest landholders. So they were fabulously wealthy, and with that come and power comes fabulous corruption, okay? And it just got... It got worse and worse. Now, in the middle of all this, which I really can't get into too much, but um, you ever heard of Bernard of Clairvaux? I'm sure every one of you here, <laughs> you know, immediately a picture comes to your mind of Bernie. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux, though, was, was a good um, monk, and um, he greatly disturbed over this, the general um, situation in the, the corruption and deadness, spiritual deadness in the church. Um, he would be one of many who attempted reform movements. And um, he was, um, he was a, a major reformer in the monastery system had become corrupt and the most of the monasteries were themselves just you know like brothels i mean it was nuts it was just nuts um a little bit later and i probably shouldn't bring this up if since i don't know the exact dates so i'd have to go back and refresh my memory it was estimated that in britain only 10 percent of the priests could read, only 10% of them could quote or repeat the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer. Um, they, they knew nothing. Um, and they weren't even educated theologically. They were just collecting money for people in purgatory and prayers for the, to the saints and offerings to the saints so the saints would help them get well or her crops grow or you know whatever, whatever the case would be um, and performing masses now that's another issue that also grew clear out of hand um, masses anybody know what the word what a mass is I mean would you know what the word means 
It just literally means sacrifice. So, along with transubstantiation that teaches that when the priest prays, consecrates the elements of bread and wine, um, transubstantiation teaches that that bread and that wine, while it retains its present look, okay, it doesn't change in appearance, but it actually becomes the literal blood of Jesus and flesh of Jesus, okay? That goes along with the teaching that the Mass is the, is the re-sacrifice of Christ every time it's carried out. Now, it's not the re-sacrifice of Christ for the sins of the whole world, but it is for that congregation. So if you come to a Mass, or a Mass is said for you, that is highly um, profitable to the forgiving of sins because Christ is re-sacrificed, okay? Which is, well, to look at the, you know, the older commentators who still talked about, you know, with a just acid in their voice, um, popery, um, it was blasphemous. Jesus died once, um, never to die again. And the idea that he is re-sacrificed every time a mass is said um, is wildly unbiblical, okay? Um, but nevertheless, this was another way to make important the power of the church over even the kings. So uh, we hold you in spiritual, uh, a spiritual bondage. Now, um, so there's several doctrines there that, that get further and further out of whack. By the way, let me ask you this, and if we got a quick uh, minute here, um, anybody know, have a, even want to guess, at where the business of abs, uh, absolving um, sins uh, by the priest at, you know, confession or, you know, whatever the case is. Where, where, does, where does that come from as far as a so-called Bible foundation? Anybody know? Or want to guess? No. Um, but, it's, but close. It's, you know, it's where Jesus said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. And then over John, that's Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Then over in John, you have a similar statement, only this time he says, whoever sins you remit, they're remitted. Whoever sins you don't remit, aren't. Okay, now, but here, um, I'm not just hunting for a version that'll read, you know, like I want it to read. But um, <clears throat> New American Standard, um, by P. 
people that know Greek a whole lot better than I do. Um, New American Standard is a good translation of those passages. Jesus in Matthew 16, um, um, well, I'll read 18. No, I'll read 17, 18, and 19 because this captures Peter and the whole business, okay? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this, that I'm the son of the living God, to you but my Father who's in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. Now that just refers to, you know, rock and pebble, his, his name. Um, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. If you've ever seen closely, even to this day, I don't know what the occasion is, but there are times when the Pope will appear with a large key hanging from a necklace on the front of his robe. That's, that's that to them. Okay? Now, but with that key, in a sense, power, I give you the keys, and whatever you bind on earth. Now, this is the way the New American Standard translates it. Most versions say, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. New American Standard, I think, accurately gets the sense here. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Do you, you see that? You bind it on earth because the Holy Spirit has already directed from heaven that it be bound. And what does bound and loose mean? It means another word is permit and not permit. This is instruction to the apostles who are sent out to preach a gospel that will not only fulfill but then lay aside the virtually the whole of the mosaic ceremonial sacrificial system. And so he tells them, what you loose, what parts of Judaism that this new Christian religion is not to include any longer, like the fights they got into that they had to settle in Acts 15, when they said, if you're not circumcised and keep the law, you can't be saved. And of course, they had this huge debate in Acts 15 where they settled it um, that this doesn't apply anymore. To me, Acts 15, where James concludes the whole session by saying, it seems good unto us and to the Holy Spirit that we lay nothing more on the Gentile believers than these four things. Um, sexual immorality, um, eating meat offered to idols, so forth. Okay, four things. Not the 9,000 <laughs> that the Mosaic Law prescribed. That to me is a perfect fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 16. What you loose has been loosed already in heaven. So heaven is dictating to earth. James said it seems good unto us and to the Holy Spirit that we loose you from all this stuff. 
and we only ask that you do such and such, which is basic morality still contained in the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now, um, it's the same wording when he says um, in John 20, um, we'll flip over to that real quick. Um, John 20, I think it's 23. Um, Yeah, Jesus breathes on them in 22 and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, And then in 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, don't forgive them, they have been retained. That gets the meaning here that heaven takes the lead in directing the church and specifically the apostles in their teaching of this new gospel that is to go into all the world and it gets written down in here so it's preserved. This is not giving the church and human ministers or priests the power to forgive sins or not forgive them at all. But that's where the scriptures twisted to give um, the church the power to forgive sins through the priests or not forgive them. Okay, so there's a power that God never, only, the only person can, that can forgive sins is God. And, and he delegates to humans the good news of forgiveness available. He delegates to Christians the testimony of the good news, not only that sins are forgiven, but here's what you must do in order to find forgiveness, repentance, and faith. Okay? Um, he gives to us as Christians and ministers the um, privilege of declaring to unbelievers how to be saved and then to those that have forsaken their sins and trusted in Christ to give them words of assurance that back up the sense in their heart that they've been forgiven. All that he gives to us to proclaim, but he never delegates to humans the ability to, know, to forgive or not forgive sins against God. He told us to forgive people when they hurt us that's horizontal but vertical god never delegated that to anybody but himself okay now um let's see here i think we probably yacked long enough um i think i had one other really profound thought that it now escapes me um so Somebody think of it. This is kind of like Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I don't remember the dream, but you better tell me what it was. Um, anyway, I'll probably, I'll remember it sometime. Um, anyway, all of this is going on at the same time. Um, it's, you know, I, I've, I've got, I've got two what you would consider 
um, exhaustive um, volumes of church history. One of them, I think, is 12 volumes. The other is two really fat ones. Um, and then at the other extreme, I've got one volume that is a really helpful book. It's just called Church History. Um, what is it? Church History for um, Easy Reading or something like that. It's, it lines up accuracy with th these guys that wrote 12 volumes. Um, but it's a, you know, it is a... Um, boiled down version that you can get you can more easily get a handle on to be you can I can see why for instance a guy named Philip Schaff is one of the 12 volume he wrote it in the 1800s sometime late 1800s it was his life's work when you read when you see all that went on and all that the records well there's no way in the world you could I don't know how you could even write what these guys wrote um, and have enough time in their lifetime to do it. So um, about the only one that can keep all this straight is God. <laughs> okay? um, but it is, um, it is fascinating, though, at least, at least it is to me, um, how you can see stuff that like this elector thing that got started clear back in the ones, um, that were 1,000s, comes to bear in the 1500s with uh, Martin Luther. Now one thing, by the way, we're gonna quit, um, that I didn't get to tonight, that, I, that I, we will next week, is at the, near the end of the th year 1000, um, is the first of the Crusades. Because that's another thing that is going on when, while all of this is going on are the Crusades, okay? To try to rescue the Holy Land from the Muslims, okay? Um, there were, it's figured, seven major um, Crusades. Um, you ever heard of the... Um, Knights, what is it, Knights of Templar or the Templar, I uh, can't remember. You ever heard of them? Okay, they came out of the Crusades, that order or whatever you want to call it, of warriors. Um, but anyway, the first crusade, and some of this is interesting, I don't know where in the world, you know, it gets all the way down to us. But the first crusade ended up being kind of a two-pronged deal where two guys, them, either they were trying to outdo each other or whatever. But one was named Peter the Hermit. He led a bunch of soldiers clear from Germany all the way down to Palestine. And then the other guy who also got up an army and they were trying to kind of get, I don't know if they were trying to get there first. His name, his name was Walter the Penniless. <laughs> okay. What? Um, but anyway, so I would rather, I guess, however weird Peter the Hermit might have been, I'd have rather been in his army than in Walter the Penniless. Uh, they probably didn't eat very well. Um, but at any rate, that's another layer that's going on while all the rest of this stuff 
is going on. And there are massive promises to whole countries made that the sins of, you know, the whole nation are forgiven if you raise an army and, and come to Jerusalem and try to get, get back the Holy Land. So um, it, was, it was just wild, the, the, this power that supposedly belonged to the church that they threw around to try to induce people to do stuff. So we'll look at the um, all seven of the Crusades. They ended up being basically, um, for a short period of time, um, they got Jerusalem back, but they soon lost it. And um, interesting thing, too, was different sects among the Muslims. The initial Muslims that took over the, the, prom, or the Holy Land didn't bother the Christians very much. They just charged taxes of them and whatever, but they pretty well left each other alone. But a more radical um, jihad group out of Turkey displaced the Muslims that were in Jerusalem and in, in the Holy Land and took it over themselves. And then what happened was you got to go to the Holy Land. If you really want to get your sins forgiven, you got to go to the Holy Land sometime in your life or go to Rome, whatever. Well, Christians were being set upon. Um, for centuries, they've been able to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they're fine. Left them alone, you're, you know, they were fine. But now that this new radical bunch of Muslims took over, then they would start persecuting them. They would start, they killed some of them, pilgrims. They would, of course, um, hold them up for ransom before they let them go home. And so that necessitated in the eyes of the Pope, we have got to rescue the Holy Land out of these hands of the Muslims. And uh, so that's what kicked off almost 200, well, almost 300 years of um, crusades. So anyway, okay, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, again, thank you for being here with us tonight and for allowing us to be here. And Lord, it is amazing when we look at all of the dark days and the tumult and the tribulation and the craziness that we still have a Bible today that we can trust completely. It is passed down even through those kinds of days without error, without mistake, we can read it and trust that it is your word. And Lord, how, how you managed to keep things together is a testament to your omnipotence. Go with us, we pray, <clears throat> tonight with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.